This is the Darcy Jerome Podcast, episode 35. Today, my guest is Luke Tatum. We're going to be talking about his new book, Between the Lies, How to Reclaim Your Future from the Banks and Wall Street. Luke Tatum. Welcome to the Darcy Jerome podcast. How are things? Hey, man, things are great. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, well, uh, saw your book come out, and and yeah, we thought it would just be a good opportunity to to have you on. Um, I'll let you introduce yourself and your business, uh, just so I don't make any mistakes. <laughs> yeah, sure, fair enough. Uh, so, I'm Luke Tatum. I'm the owner of Perfect Spiral Capital and author of the book that you just alluded to, which is um, Between the Lies, How to Reclaim Your Future from the Banks and Wall Street. That is a, li- a little bit of a U.S.-centric book, you know. so I know it may be outside of the, the realm of some of your listeners, but um, the concepts I'm talking about in there are broadly applicable in Canada as well. So I think this is a, a great fit, and I'm excited to chat with you about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As far as being U.S. centric, I mean, there isn't a whole lot of difference between the Canadian banking system and the American banking system, other than ours is an e- an even more cartelized, ver- you know, and so we have a a smaller amount of banks, and they do wield a little bit more power and and monopoly strength, kind of thing. I'd actually just like to walk through the book a little bit, and then we'll we'll see where that takes us, but. Your your first chapter, perception. You 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 go through some of these things about you know banking and investments and kind of the the status quo on how people operate, right? So, tell us a bit about uh, the first chapter in the book. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the first chapter is is really all about just I mean, at the beginning at the outset it's about how we perceive reality because i mean that was a huge eye opener for me when i first started to connect some things like i used to perceive all subjects as separate right like you have psychology and then you have banking and then you have economics and you know and they're all just different things and and over the years i stopped feeling that way basically altogether i mean it's it's everything is sort of another lens on the same subject and so understanding like how the human mind works although you know my book is ostensibly about investments and about life insurance and about banking systems you know all this stuff uh that seemed to me the best place to start is talking about how the the brain works and so uh it's it's just a little bit about understanding what is, you know, your original thought and what's coming from somewhere else and kind of what sleight of hand is being used to sort of trick you into thinking along certain lines. Uh, This is, I mean, applicable to every area of your life. It's just, you know, being a human and interacting with other humans and, you know, TV shows and all these things. You have all of these uh, messages sent at you all the time in various forms and and what does your brain actually do with that so that's kind of the the crux of that beginning portion and from there i'm going into the uh, the banking world and the eventually wall street which you know i know different names so forgive me again u.s centric right but i'm going to talk about wall street 
Yeah, we we all we yeah we we know what Wall Street is, it, but in Canada we have uh, Bay Street, which is just as yeah, uh, you know, just as dangerous if you don't know how to <laughs> find your way around. <laughs> right, you've got the Toronto Exchange, and you know those things. It's like there there's analogous terms to pretty much every term I'll throw out there. Um, but but the uh, you know just how those things work how they're like supposed to work how like we're told they work <laughs> and and so broadly speaking like the the book is part one and part two and part one is all the things you've been told and sort of starting to pick at the edges of those things and say well you know is that actually true like this is what you're being told and is that actually correct and then part two is kind of what to do about it so I, I just jumped outside of the original question. I didn't stick oh, no. to chapter one, but <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> yeah, no, that's okay. Don't worry about that. The bank is is not your friend. And again, you get into all kinds of great stuff in here. You know, I, I think compared to say twenty years ago, I mean, a lot of people have a better understanding of what fractional reserve banking is these days, and how you know how the how the how the banks operate with. Uh, you know, printing, you know, basically creating debt out of, out of, uh, nothing. Uh, but, you know, I, I think the sad thing there is that, um, even now that, you know, I thought 20 years ago, if everybody knew this, they would be outraged. But now everybody just kind of seems to know it and nobody cares. What, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's been absolutely true here. I mean, I've lived in Texas in the United States for most of my life. We just moved to Arkansas a little over one year ago. And so yeah, my experience has been in Texas basically my, my whole life. And uh, down there, you know, it's not like we're a near neighbor to Canada exactly, but down there in Texas, yeah, same thing. It's like I I went through the usual sort of libertarian cycle where it's like, you understand some of these things and then you go through this period of a few months where you just want to grab people on the shoulders and just like shake them like, don't you understand? <laughs> and, you know, then you kind of get that that doesn't matter to anyone. And even if they do understand, it hasn't changed their life like in any way. And so um, that's very frustrating. It's like extremely hard to let go of that initial impulse to just like we have to educate everyone. Right. Because and. And that sort of went into – I'm glad you say this. That sort of went into how I wrote the book because if I just made it like a like a, a Jim Rickards book, like the collapse of the dollar type stuff, if I made it really, really aggressively like libertarian, then who is going to care? Because it's just like, oh, you know, yeah, okay, cool. That's a book about conspiracies or whatever, right? And it, it's just – it's about messaging in the right way and meeting people kind of where they are. And so this is you know, one, one of my things was I want to go just enough into that. Like I'm going to teach a little bit of econ. I'm going to talk a little bit about fractional reserve banking, <laughs> you know, like but the absolute minimum amount that I could go into those topics because you just start to at a certain point, you know, you'd say, OK, well, the U.S. dollar is a debt currency and people are like, well, OK, you know, but I have dollars. I can go spend them. And so like there's this huge disconnect between the daily actual experience of people and, you know, this uh, pure theory, what people would say is pure theory. And it's just like, oh, we're just ivory tower intellectuals talking about how money works. But I have money. I can go spend it. So what difference does it make? Right. You know, 
this is how people understand inflation and how people understand all these things. It's like, um, it's not to say that it's their fault. It's not like the education helped them. That's right. (laughs) You know, uh, public school, I mean, doesn't talk about any of this at all. I, I literally, uh, had a economics class in high school when I was in high school and it was a one semester class and it was, um, basically taught in absentia my my teacher would say okay we're doing chapter one and then she would just go leave oh and, yeah yeah <laughs> it's like okay so i i didn't learn any econ i mean literally none in um in, in school traditional school and so this has all just been like discovering and putting pieces together later but the you know the the question you actually asked about kind of digging into some of these things it's just it's one thing leads to another man (laughs) oh for sure oh for sure yeah absolutely you and you do get into inflation i mean here in canada we're experiencing a terrible inflationary crisis right now you know it's just it's created you know distortions everywhere that that people are really really struggling with um you know you know, across labor markets and supply chains and everything. And, and, uh, that's, that's been really tough. And again, uh, you know, it's one of those things like, you know, you want people to understand, like, this is, this is all done for political gain more than anything. That's why, that's why we're suffering, right? Uh, and so that's why we're in su- suffering because of inflation anyway. But, um, and you do get into, uh, the gold standard, which again, you know, has been, you know, was phased out of existence over sixty or seventy years, and and eventually put to put to bed in the in the seventies. But you know that was a really the gold standard. I mean, why libertarians love it is because it's a way to actually hold you know policymakers accountable as far as their their finances are, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Um, if you if you have some actual limiting asset you know some basis for the currency then yeah there there are actual limits on how many wars can be started and yes. <laughs> how many public programs can be started and you know all of those things it's like uh we but i mean people alive today like you know the older you and i get like there's more and more and more people that weren't even around for you know the september 11th attack and you know things like that it's like they just don't know. They just don't know. And, you know, they'll be taught in this sort of like whitewashed version of what occurred. Like I remember the textbooks that I was reading when I was in college. I I went to college for three semesters and dropped out. And so I had a political class. I can't even tell you the class name, but, uh, you know, I was talking about George W. Bush as being uh, like the most recent president that they had anything on. And it was like a brand new textbook. And it's just, it's this like little boilerplate, little, you know, look at our wonderful president kind of a thing. And he he was an unpopular president, right? But it's still, uh, still a, a just completely devoid of any substantive fact analysis of the historical record, right? It's, it's, well, you know, and, 
and then the U.S. did this. Yeah. And it's like, okay. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, yeah. There's, no, there's no like, well, what was the downside? Look at the economic wreckage that was caused by this policy sort of a thing. Oh, um, sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the difference between reading like a, a textbook issued by a school versus reading like Rothbard's book on, you know, American history or his mm-hmm. series, I guess you yeah. could say. The, like um, conceived in Liberty. Uh, conceived in Liberty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like it's as different as it, anything could possibly be. Oh, right? for the sure. only commonality between those two texts is that they're written in English. I mean, you know, it's like <laughs> that's yeah. it. Yeah, so absolutely. You know, it, the same thing happens in Canada. I mean, every time a conservative or so-called conservative is elected to power, you know, the fiscal responsibility nobody cares about it anymore. Because I mean, through you know, through George W. Bush in the States and through uh, Stephen Harper here in Canada. I mean, all like the debt increased, you know, the spending increased, the programs increased, the everything. There wasn't there wasn't anywhere where either of them shrunk government at all, you know, maybe slowed the rate of growth in some areas, but it just it totally gets uh, thrown, you know, thrown out the window. No, it, it's a conversation that disappears other than uh, you know the libertarian right that uh, that will will make that critique and become incredibly unpopular because of it, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's not real fun to to have that opinion in some conversations, right? It's like, well, you know, and and that's one of the things like Ron Paul, you know, was a big influence on me, of course, and uh, that was one of the things that you just have to love about that guy, regardless of how you feel, you know, if you. If you're going to play the not a real libertarian game or whatever, you know, some people will kind of go after him because he was in the government. But like he would always turn every conversation back around to the Federal Reserve and printing more money and debasing the currency. And it's like, you know, that's awesome. That is what you need to do because all of these problems like there's cultural problems, socioeconomic problems, every single realm is negatively affected by the fact that the money is falling apart at an increasing rate. <laughs> oh, oh, for sure, for sure. You know, one book that I think was really instrumental in raising awareness on this, and it's it's kind of unpopular, and, and uh, you know, G. Edward Griffin gets a lot of grief because of his conspiracy stuff, but but the creature from Jekyll Island is a fantastic book. Oh, is oh, it's right, right there. there. Yeah, yeah. Mine, <laughs> I, I would, yeah. The, the listeners can't see us, but he's pointing to his copy of uh, of it. So, uh, and I, mine is on the shelf beside me here, also. Uh, but a, a fantastic book on how you know he he does he does lay it out conspiratorial conspiratorially or like a. Uh, you know, kind of. I, he even refers to it himself as a whodunit, like a a murder mystery kind of thing, and um, and it does read that way. But I mean, really, it's just packed full of great information on how, you know, the uh, the Federal Reserve or something like the Bank of Canada here in Canada can can really, you know, contribute to you know the decay of our society, basically. Now, let's see. You get into in your book before we get any more off topic. <laughs> so yeah the federal reserve i mean um and again the way you have this book laid out is great these short little sections and as an example could you just like go over your section on the federal reserve because i think it's only like three or four pages or something and it's just packed full of everything you need to know 
so that you can be against the Federal Reserve, basically. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, you know, and that the quote that every every subchapter has a quote at the beginning, and you know, a lot of books do that. It's not like that's some cool, innovative thing. But the uh, the quote that starts that little subchapter is, I mean, I found it from G. Edward Griffin's book because he at the very beginning he's talking about uh, Nelson Aldrich. You know, and the passage of the Federal Reserve Act and some of these things. So, like, that's where that quote came from. Is mm -hmm. from that book. So, very, very good transition. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, into this. Uh, but the, yeah, I mean, that chapter and it's really just following what actually occurs when you deposit money into a bank, right? Because all of the banks in the United States are part of the Federal Reserve system. Otherwise, they're not given a bank charter, right? Like you don't get to play outside of this cartel. And so you you think or maybe you don't think this, but a lot of people think that you hand them $100,000 and they go stick it in a vault and it's just sitting there waiting for you whenever you need your $100,000 back. And that is not at all what occurs, right? And it's it's not just that they don't keep the money there, it's that they actually are enabled to create new loans. And so new money is entering the money supply. The total amount of dollars is going up whenever you put money in a savings account because if you put in $100,000, they can loan out $90,000 to someone else. And it's not just your $90,000. It's new money. It's, it's, you know, so money literally enters the economy as debt. And that when someone says the, the, you know, the US dollar is a debt based money, it's, it's, it's literally true because that's what is going on. Now, every single dollar doesn't enter the economy that way, but this happens routinely, you know, in every, branch office of every bank franchise like all across the the nation and i'm sure that's exactly what happens in canada too you know because legally I, there is a whole lot of overlap in the way these things occur you know there you change the name and it's the same thing basically like retirement plans here we have 401ks you guys have your gsrps uh, is R that the R right R acronym rsps G yeah rsps yep and so and you know, employer ones, I know, have a G in front of it or something. And so it's like there's – there's you just change the name. Like but it's basically the same thing. There's a couple of tweaks. And so – but you know, you deposit $100,000. That means there is now $190,000 out there. And not they don't keep the money in the vault. They you know use that to kind of capitalize their books. They send it up the chain and all these other things are going on. But it's uh, it, it's just – it's a very bleak chapter, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, that you pick to to kind of highlight there. Um, but it's and it's a succession of those things, right? So your ninety thousand dollars that they, you know, well, I say your the ninety thousand dollars that they created based on your deposit gets loaned out and then repaid at interest. They make money on ma money that was made up, and then they loan out the same money again, the substantial portion of that. Uh, in the form of creating another lump. And so I have a chart there, a, a series of numbers kind of walking through, and I'm not good at doing percentages in my head, so I'm not going to take a stab at at 
giving you those numbers, but it's like 90% of the 90,000 and it's 90% of whatever that is. And then it's 90% and they just continuously do this. And now (laughs) the kind of punchline, I think it's in this chapter. The punchline of that is that this is how things used to work. And when the coronavirus stuff happened, they actually suspended the minimum amount of reserve that's needed. So there is legally no reserve requirement. It's not 10%. It's it's zero. I mean, functionally, it's probably more like 3% because they, they do have to have some money in order to like give you money when you ask for it. But they, they do not keep much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and most of it is made up and just typed on a computer. Yeah. So it's bad news. It, it is bad news. And, and I, you know, it's sad because I think so many people don't understand uh, what a house of cards it is, like how uh, it could, you know, and again, not to be a, a doomsayer or anything, but they, you know, you, we're as, as a society, we're carrying a lot of risk uh, with, with the fact that all, everything, is based on debt, right? I mean, and you mentioned Jim Rickards. I mean, he yeah, he talks about that a lot. You know, as far as a reserve requirement, I mean, supposedly there's still a lot of gold somewhere that the the Federal Reserve has. Um, in Canada, sure. you know, we got rid of all the gold. There is no gold left in our central bank in Canada at all. And all we have is, uh, you know, Federal Reserve notes and uh, – or – whatever they would be, the Federal Reserve bonds or whatever, and uh, the SDRs from the, uh, which are the special drawing rights from the International Monetary Fund, who again, anybody who listens to this podcast, here's the International Monetary Fund, and the hair will probably stand up on the back of their neck. But that that is the foundation for the Canadian dollar right now. Um, that's That's what we are, every transaction is based on other than the ability of for them to keep taxing us, but it's based on uh, these Federal Reserve notes and and these uh, special drawing rights. So again, it is it is funny that to think that you can have a, con- a currency that is based on uh, nothing, absolutely nothing, other than <laughs> people's ability to pay back the money they borrowed, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, it's it's sort of like the you know, the the classic counter argument to this line of, of speaking is, well, you know, the the basis of the value of the U.S. dollar is that you have to pay taxes in U.S. dollars. Like there's a requirement for a certain amount of transactions in this currency. And I mean, that just I, I don't really know that I need to elaborate on that. Like that's just completely <laughs> silly to to yeah. say, well, you know, because I'm going to make you pay me in this currency at gunpoint, it's valuable. Like, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but that's like a, that's a Paul Krugman, you know, New York times, oh, yeah. uh, best-selling or I guess he's a bestseller. He's an extremely successful Nobel prize winning economist. And he's like, yep, that's why the money's valuable. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Capitalism and Morality Calgary is happening on Saturday, May 20th, 2023 at the Danish Canadian Club in Calgary. The Capitalism and Morality Seminar has been taking place in Vancouver for over a decade. Events have also been held in Hong Kong. This is the first time it will be held in Calgary. We are adding more speakers all the time. 
Derek Feldebrandt will be speaking, who is a guest on the Darcy Drill podcast on episode 13. He's the owner and CEO of Western Standard Media and refuses to take any state funding, unlike the legacy media. Tickets are on sale now at capitalismandmorality.com. You can use the link in the show notes page and promo code DGPODCAST to get 15% off the ticket price. So let's talk a bit. You you go through some other, you know, fallacies as far as conventional conventional thinking around money and investing goes. Can you touch on that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, uh, one of the things and and I don't know how prevalent this this line of thought is, you know, in Canada, but in the United States, we have, you know, of course the New York Stock Exchange and and all of the major stock players going on there and then the there is a a index the S&P Standard and Poor's 500 500 largest companies by capitalization and so that is perceived to be this like kind of standard that you should aim for with your market based investments and so you know it's very very common for financial advisors people there to just say okay i mean what we're trying to target is the growth rate of the S&P 500. Uh, it's, it's the market, right, because it's the biggest companies. And so that's, that's sort of a underpinning that, that goes into all financial advice. As you get older, you're supposed to be less exposed to equities and you're supposed to be more into bonds and all these things. There's, there's rules of thumb that get thrown around and I didn't – tackle all of those things because, uh, well, it's the same reason I cut a lot of stuff out of the book is I wanted the book to be short enough for someone to want to read it. And, you know, when we're talking about the big books that are sitting on our bookshelves, <laughs> like that's just not something that most people go, oh, yeah, I'll just read that this weekend because I, I can't read any of those books in one weekend. You know, they're they're long. And so I wanted it to be kind of a grab and go sort of a book and that's where the chapter structures came in and everything as well. But the the S&P 500, like I say, sort of seen as this uh, – I'm about to make a horrible joke. It's seen as sort of a gold standard, <laughs> and that's that's sort of like what you look at whenever you're you, – you, you, you know, I mean, and a lot of websites will show this. It's like what is the performance of this mutual fund versus the relevant index? Well, if it's an equity-based mutual fund, we're talking about the S&P 500. And so, you know, does it perform better than or worse than the S&P 500? You'll see these little charts and graphs where you have your lines comparing the performance. And so, but the problem is people are given, and this is by law, they are shown on all brokerage websites, they are shown the one-year, three-year, five-year, and 10-year average rate of return of these mutual funds or index funds or whatever it is, ETF, it doesn't matter. And that is the like, okay, I'm we're making sure that you, the consumer, are given the information you need to evaluate whether or not this is a good investment, right? That's that's the line of thinking. And what I go through in the book is something that uh, just it kind of blew my mind multiple times as I was working on writing it. But 
it, average rate of return is not meaningful. It is not like in any way meaningful yeah. <laughs> because uh, you you are just I mean, yeah, well, I, I guess I'll pull the, my own rug out from under my own feet here. But the the kind of punchline of that build up in the the book is that you can have an investment that has a 25 percent annual rate of return and will actually increase in value zero dollars or zero, you know, whatever unit, uh, it does not increase because 100% up and then 50% down over and over and over. You can do that for 150,000 years and it still end up with the same amount of money that you started with. I mean, nominally speaking, right? And that's not even factoring in inflation. <laughs> so uh, that's, that's, and that's what that would sound like if I said, hey, I've got two investments and one of them's got a 5% rate of return and one of them's got a 25% rate of return. Everyone will take the 25% rate of return basically without thinking um, <laughs> because that's a really high number. Don't you know the stock market only makes 10%? That's more than double the stock market return. Well, that's not true. The stock market doesn't return 10% per year or 8% or whatever number you've heard. That's just the average rate of return, which doesn't mean anything. <laughs> so it, it's, I mean, very, very frustrating because that is the message from every financial office everywhere uh, is let's compare rates of return. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the key thrusts of the book. That's one of the main reasons I wrote it is because I had through, you know, some research and some statistical analysis and all these things, I've I'd figured out that that did not mean anything yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it, it frustrates me <laughs> right now. Like, I'm, I'm getting a little agitated. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was it, it, even for me, I mean, I had, I remember seeing uh, similar information in the past. Um, the, the other one you pointed out that was really interesting is when you, you know, withdrawing money from, from a, from a savings account or a savings plan or a stock market or anything where you're seeing a, rate of return, how much that damages your future, like your future investments. It's, it's, it's crazy. Right. Yeah. I mean, compounding is a term that people throw around all the time. And it's, it's sort of like average rate of return. Like people think they know what that word means or that term means, and they don't. And this is not, I mean, th the point of this is not for me to like run victory laps and say, ha ha, I figured some stuff out that people don't know. It's, uh, it's just that no, I mean, everyone acts in this completely ignorant way, including the people that you pay money to give you advice on your finances. And that's not good, <laughs> you know? So it's, it's more of a wake up call just to say, uh, you know, here are the tools. And it's not like, I mean, I invite people in my book to give my office a call and, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to talk to people that are especially like-minded, but uh, you know, it's not to say work with me. I'm the best guy and the only one who understands this. It's to say like you need to know that the things that are being shown to you are incorrect and they're you know the the fundamental assumptions are are invalid. And so that um, that section, I mean, it's a lot of fun. I had a whole lot of fun writing all that, of course. But it's it's compounding requires you know if for you to say that an investment is compounding it requires that you're not taking anything out of the system uh you, you know if you have a 
savings account at a bank that pays 1%, okay, it pays 1% and that will compound as long as you never, ever touch the money at all. As soon as you start taking anything out, as you're you know alluding to, then you're resetting the compounding. Like if you if you have ten thousand dollars and it's earning money for thirty years, and then you take out all of your growth, your compounding just started over. And so, like the the one percent rate of growth, what is that? A hundred dollars on uh, on ten thousand. So your next year, you know, year thirty one, and your amazing compounding tool you've built out will have $100 of compound growth, <laughs> you know, because you've just reset the whole system. And that is, I mean, that's a rule of wealth that people are not taught. Like you do not want to affect your principle. You do not want to, you know, interrupt this this flow because, you know, we're on earth for a finite period of time and you, in order to like, get out there and do more things and find more investments and and start a nonprofit and whatever cool stuff you really want to do with your life like you you need to have an expanding base of assets and so like please don't chop yourself off at the knees every time you need any money by pulling money you know out of these compounding systems and there's <laughs> the other punchline is that there's not really very many compounding systems out there to choose from. Uh, it's it's really a, a pretty <laughs> yeah. paltry assortment. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, especially when especially when, like we talked about earlier, we're going through this inflationary uh, whirlwind where, I mean, not, uh, you know, if you were if you were in the inflation market, you would <laughs> you would be doing fine. But it, I mean, that should really be that should really be the benchmark right now. So let so let's talk about uh the solutions you lay out in the book. I guess before we go any further, I mean I, I you know the listeners should know that your business is uh within the infinite banking system uh idea, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the infinite banking concept. So like I'm I'm not endorsed in any way by the Infinite Banking Institute uh practitioners. I I'm what's known as a Authorized Infinite Banking Concept Practitioner is a very long title, but all it means is that I've been interviewed by them. I've gone through their materials quite a lot, and I've uh, you know passed an exam and all those things to kind of demonstrate a a minimum understanding of this in order to you know have dialogue with the public uh, with what is actually whole life insurance, and so that I mean. It's something that everyone, again, right in the similar theme, everyone is taught in life insurance is a horrible place to put money and you should never do this and you should just buy term insurance and then invest in the stock market because you'll get higher rates of return. Well, what does that mean? And so, you know, it's this the other side of, well, annual rate of return is meaningless is, well, actually, whole life is a really good place to park money. And so specifically designing policies to meet cash flow needs and to kind of create a what is effectively a private banking system for you and your family to use or you and your business or you and your nonprofit, whatever situation suits you, uh, that is what I do. And that's that's all I do. My uh, company, Perfect Spiral Capital, is a life insurance agency and we help people build policies to meet their cash flow needs and to 
keep the tax man away yeah, yeah. <laughs> using those because uh, it's a, a very, very favored thing. Life insurance is a very favored place for money when it comes to the tax system. And that's true in Canada, too, although there's some nuance there. It's not it's not exactly the same. But, uh, you know, and there's there's Canadian practitioners. I should say that, too. So the easiest thing if someone becomes inspired by this conversation and wants to learn more be to reach out to a Canadian practitioner. I um, you, InfiniteBanking.org has a practitioner finder, and you can search by province up there and, and find people. I'm exploring the option of breaking into the Canadian market, but obviously that's a little bit more difficult being in the States, getting licensed up there. So uh, right. we'll see. But okay. Yeah, very, very interesting. <laughs> anyway, I, so so let, let's get into the uh, infinite banking concept a bit more. So you touched on some of this stuff, but like, let's let's go over the actual mechanics of it. Like, so you purchase a whole life policy, and how does that turn into you basically owning your own bank? <laughs> yeah, because it doesn't sound like those things are related at all, right? <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> um, I, so, so I guess the best place to start with that is to say, okay. If you buy a whole life insurance policy, there's different types of life insurance companies. There's stock companies that are owned just in the regular way. They're they're publicly traded stocks. There's lots of those. And then there's what's known as mutual companies. And I'm always going to favor mutual companies for trying to implement this system because if it's a mutual company and you have what's called a participating policy – then you are a part owner of the company. Mutual means it's owned by the people who own the products. And so you get to participate in the profitability of that company. And I don't know, this may be a surprise to some listeners, but life insurance companies are quite good at making money. Um, they they receive premiums you know, month after month, year after year. They manage them in an extremely conservative way way. And so one of the companies that I offer policies from through my company, they've paid a dividend for 118 years in a row. There are companies that have paid dividends for 160 plus years in a row, um, I mean, you know, consecutively. So through every conceivable bad thing that has happened in history, uh, it's it's crazy. And Canada – uh, you know, there are mutual life insurance companies up there. I don't have their dividend numbers in front of me. A lot of them are are jealously guarded secrets <laughs> for oh. some of these companies. <laughs> uh, they don't like to, you know, publish rates and there's, you know, there's different things that go on there. But And they don't have to because it's a private company. They don't have a quarterly earnings report because they're not stock. They're not publicly traded stock companies. It's privately held. And so uh, – but a mutual company – if you are a part owner of a profitable company that pays a dividend, what do you do with your dividend is kind of what the question becomes. And if you own a dividend-paying whole life insurance policy, the idea would be to have your dividend buy more life insurance. And as you accumulate more life insurance, you will earn more dividends, which can then grow your policy. So it's, it's a compounding vehicle. But it's not just the dividend. Because this is the cool thing about it. It's all internal to the contract, right? Uh, you you have a, an, an arrangement with this company that they must pay your beneficiaries a death benefit when you die. Not if, 
It's not term insurance where, you know, you, you've signed up for a 20-year pay period, a 20-year piece of insurance. It's forever. Um, now, technically, <laughs> it's it's to age 100 or to age 121. The U.S. is typically more focused on 121, and Canada, from what I understand, is generally 100 is the age. So if you make it, if you're still alive at the end of the contract, they will just pay you the death benefit as a check right then, and you it's just over. You say, here you go. This is the money you've been, you know, we've been stewarding for you. It's ready for you. Here you go. But the uh, the fact that they must pay you means that there is a present value to that future payment. So the longer you live, the more likely you are to die soon, right? I mean, that's pretty pretty uncontroversial thing to say. And so you have this thing called a cash value or a cash surrender value in these contracts. Well, cash surrender just means if you decide that you don't want this policy anymore, that's the size of the check they'll pay you now to take them off the hook for paying the death benefit later. And you know, so that's that's just a regular old whole life insurance policy without any kind of infinite banking, any fancy stuff happening there. What the infinite banking practitioner will do is to allow to structure this in a way that allows single payment lump sum funding or what we call paid up additions, PUAs. That means, okay, I give them $1,000. My death benefit goes up by who knows, $1,500, $2,000, $2,200. It depends on your age and health. Your death benefit goes up. Well, what happens when your death benefit goes up? Your cash value goes up. And because you've paid for this in one payment, your death benefit goes up – I mean, excuse me, your uh, cash value goes up a lot. Like you put in $1,000, you probably have about $950 of cash value a couple of weeks from then. So, you, I mean, you're just straight running a bank at that point. You're putting money in. It's got this initial kind of cost offset factor, but – Pretty soon with the dividends and the fact that your contract's worth more money every single day as long as you live, it's it's way more money than you've put in. Uh, a few years into these contracts, you've got this profitable on its own terms asset that you can use for anything. Uh, so that's the beauty of it, right? That's where you're a bank and you get to decide who gets to loan your money and all that. One of the people that can loan your money if you're a bank is you. And so – can approve loans for whatever you want to do. It's, but it's taking responsibility for your own financial life because you could take out a loan and do something really stupid and then you, yeah. you have a loan out, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You've got you've to figure that out. Um, but, I mean, yeah, I, I feel like I've maybe rambled too long on this point just framing it up, but it's just uh, that's, that's the mechanics, man. You, yeah. You've got this asset and you can do anything you want to with it. Yeah. Well, no, I don't think you rambled rambled too long at all. It is, I, I think, for any well, I mean, I think for anybody who's never heard of this before, it it is it does take at least the explanation you've given because it is a little more um, outside of the people's regular thought pattern on how to accumulate wealth and how to accumulate money and where to go to borrow money and all that sort of stuff. Now, some of the stuff about the infinite banking concept is interesting because 
I would say, I would guess like in the 1950s when everybody had a whole life insurance policy, people kind of used their whole life insurance policies this way without thinking about it in in some ways, like because it was just part of everybody's portfolio. And if they needed uh, some money, an emergency fund of some kind, they would access their however they could with the uh, with the insurance policy and and all that. But it it, it that's been on the decline. And also, I mean, it was uh, Nelson Nash, I believe, who really um, kind of put together this idea of you know running all your finances through. Uh, your whole life insurance policy. And he did that after he had run into some uh, financial trouble, I believe. Is, is that correct? I, I, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. He uh, he had some real estate. He was doing real estate investing. He was buying forestry land and doing all these cool things. And uh, he had, uh, you know, changes to tax regulations and different things that really messed up his investment strategy. And so he owed banks all this money and had no real way to to repay them and so what did he do he started a whole bunch of life insurance policies and capitalized those and i mean he did the complete opposite of the thing that you're supposed to do and <laughs> you know it ended up it ended up paying off for him in the long run doing it that way uh that's most people don't do that even if they're in the ibc world and they're all about it like Nash is a very, very cool, interesting guy, and you know, definitely the world is is less bright for his passing. But it's, um, you know, it, it's not to say you have to be Nelson Nash in order to like the infinite banking concept, right? You can, you can approach these things different ways. But yeah, that, that's his story. Um, the forestry land in particular is kind of some of the insight that led him to this. And so I, I tell that story a lot. I've actually told that story today about oh, yeah. <laughs> buying forestry. Yeah. Luke, well, thanks a lot for coming on and talking to us. Uh, congratulations on the success of the book. Tell the listeners uh, where they can find you or follow you. Sure. Uh, the best place to check out the book is to just go to betweentheliesbook.com. And if you'd like to just read my professional blog, check out the website, see some of the things I do for clients, et cetera, et cetera. That is at perfectspiralcapital.com. You search Perfect Spiral Capital on all your social medias and all those things as well. But um, the website will get you there, and Between the Lies book will get you there as well. Awesome. Okay. Thanks a lot, Luke. Thank you. That was Luke Tatum. Check out his new book, Between the Lies. The Darcy Drill Podcast is a production of capitalismandmorality.com. If you like the Darcy Jerome podcast, subscribe on Substack.